Well, good, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, we started reading uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church together, uh, and we talked about the first few lines of the letter. Uh, and if you were here, or if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatian church, you know that it starts out pretty unleashed and pretty hot. It is filled with emotion, and that emotion and that urgency is because Paul was absolutely convinced that he was writing about freedom. He was convinced that he was writing about our freedom uh, to really know God, the freedom for us to be called his children, the incredible freedom that we have to call him Father without any hesitation in our voices. Paul was convinced that he was writing about the freedom to experience the love of God and then in turn to live lives of love and service in this world. He had that urgency and that emotion because he was convinced that he was writing about the freedom to be the humans that God has created us to be. For freedom, he wrote. For freedom, Christ has set you free. So he's worried that his friends might be throwing their freedom away for something much less. So he wrote this letter to win their hearts and to change their minds. And if you are at all like me, you need to hear this again. I'm tempted every day to live as if I am not free, to run away from the freedom that I have in Jesus. And so if you're like me, this letter is for us. So let me pick up in verse 10, where we left off last week. I'll read Galatians 1, uh, verses 10 through 24. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Galatians 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we just heard in those two uh, readings that Adam read that you have sent your son Jesus to be a light in darkness, a light to the whole world, to all people. And then we sang together those ancient and beautiful words about how your light even makes our daylight more lucid and bright. And so what we ask, Father, now is that we would experience that and know that that's true in this moment as we read and talk about your word and think about it, that you would show us the light of Jesus again and shine it into the darkness of wherever we find ourselves this morning and bring us light. You know who's here this morning who feels close to you, and you know those of us who are here this morning who feel far from you, you know those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, those of us who are hungry and thirsty and ready to hear, those of us who aren't even sure why it is that we're here, how we've ended up here this morning. Whoever we are, Father, meet us and show us the light of Jesus' grace and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, I went to the hospital to visit someone. <clears throat> it happened to be in a restricted part of the hospital um, where visitors are pretty tightly regulated. That happens sometimes. You go to see someone, uh, you know, after hours or in a, a part of the hospital where uh, visitors aren't usually allowed. Uh, but over the years, I've learned that if you tell the person at the desk that you're the pastor of the person that you want to see, they usually uh, let you in. I'm not suggesting that you guys do that. I do it because it's actually true when I say it. Just do it if it's true. Uh, so I went to visit this person. I got off the elevator, and the person at the desk asked me as soon as I got off the elevator what I was doing there, and I told them who I was there to see. She told me visitors were not allowed, which is one on every sign uh, that was posted in that room. So I did what I do. I said, well, I'm that person's pastor. And as soon as those words left my mouth, I could tell by the look on her face that this was not going to be easy. She didn't even answer me. She just turned to the guy that was sitting next to her with that Jim from the office kind of knowing look. And uh, I knew it was going to be a problem. My, my hair was longer then. I probably had on jeans and a flannel shirt, which is what I wear 200 days out of the year. I didn't look like a pastor or talk like one, I guess. Uh, and so when she looked away from me, I just started cracking up. And she turned back to me. She asked if I had any credentials. Now, I do have credentials, but here's the thing. For some inexplicable reason, our denomination prints these credentials just on a thick piece of paper. It's not laminated. My picture is not on it. Honestly, it looks like someone took maybe five minutes to design and print it while they were texting their friend. They're not great credentials. But I would have gladly shown her mine. Except years ago, my wallet had gotten wet, and because it was a piece of paper, it was fused to the inside of my wallet and completely smudged. I mean, you could tell that it was a thing once, and if you wanted to be generous, you could let it pass. But the truth is, I don't even try to show it to anyone anymore. So, I did not have much to commend myself. I was empty-handed at that desk, save my wits and my effervescent charm. <laughs> which was apparently enough, because I eventually got in. And the part of the letter that we just read together is Paul, 
standing at the desk, trying to get in to see his friends. His credentials have been questioned. And that's why he's telling this story that he's telling. That's why he's telling his story. And of course, it's the first century. He couldn't just pop over to Galatia to clear things up. He couldn't tweet about it. He could not pick up the phone to talk to his friends. And so he writes with passion to them. And after the opening lines, you can be certain that he had their attention. And I think it's important to remember that that's how this went. This was a letter, and it was read out loud, straight through in one sitting. And Paul has just laid down the strongest denunciation that is available to him. We talked about it last week. He said, look, I, I don't care who it is. It could be me. It could be someone else. It could be an angel from heaven. I don't care if anyone comes to you and preaches to you a gospel different than the one you first received, let them be accursed. I don't care who does it. It would have been electric in the room when that was read. It would have been electric in there for lots of reasons, not the least of which was this is precisely what had happened. A group had come in after Paul and told the church there that Paul was mistaken on some very important things. And church, the only way, the only way that they could have gotten access to do that, the only way that they could have gotten their foot in the door even just a little bit to let even a crack of light come through so that they could begin to say those things was that they first had to attack Paul. They had to start by questioning Paul. If they could ever make him look fraudulent or lesser, then it would be no problem at all to make his teaching look fraudulent or lesser. And so now Paul is standing at the desk trying to get in to see his friends. And in response, he comes on like a freight train bringing up curses right out of the gate. Why, why would Paul begin that way? Well, because there is no better way to combat the deepest and the most painful of the accusations that must have been made against him. And here's probably what they sounded like. Paul is playing fast and loose Paul is selling you faith on the cheap. Paul is telling you what you want to hear, and you're buying it. That's why Paul, right after he comes out of the gate with those curses, asks these two questions in verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I now trying to please men? The subtext, which I think is heard just as loudly as the actual text, is that a guy who's trying to please people does not say the kind of things that he just said. And his point is well taken. They certainly don't. But Paul makes sure, he underlines it. He wants his friends to know, this gospel that I've told you, it's not man's gospel. I didn't get it from any human being. No human being taught this to me. I heard it as a revelation. I received it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now we'll come back uh, to what he means by that in a minute, but for now it's good for us to stop and to remind ourselves the very specifics of why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. He hasn't gotten to the details yet, but we're not like his first readers who would have known the details intimately before we even read the first word of the letter. So we need to be reminded it helps us read this. Like I said, some folks had come to Galatia after Paul had left, after he had founded the church there. And their message was basically this. Okay, you've made a good start at being Christians. It's good that you believe in Jesus. But in order to be really pleasing to God, in order to take this thing to the next place, in order to make progress as Christians... You need more. Specifically, what they were saying is you need to observe some of the ritual aspects of Old Testament law. You need to eat kosher. You need to observe certain days. The males among you need to be circumcised. Do those things, and then you'll be all set. And Paul, like we said last week, is just completely insistent and thoroughgoing in his reply from the beginning to the end of this letter. Paul says over and over again that knowing and experiencing the grace of Jesus through faith is enough. And it will always, always be enough to change us into the people that we were created to be. Not faith in Jesus and a bunch of other stuff. Just faith in Jesus. Okay, so now that we know that, now that that's in our heads, it's not hard for us to imagine why they would have said about Paul what they said, that he was selling faith on the cheap. It's easy to know why they would say that, because what they're telling the Galatians is, Paul's taken out all of the hard stuff. He's taken out all of the difficult stuff. The the Greco-Roman intelligentsia already looked down on people who ate kosher and who practiced circumcision. They thought it was strange and regressive. The whole world that they lived in thought these things were strange. And so Paul is just coming along, and he's trying to make this faith palatable to you. He's trying to make it easy. He's seeking the approval of people. He likes to be liked, and you're buying what he's selling. So Paul tells them, another story, his story, because it reveals the much more complex and beautiful reality of not just who he is, but of what it looks like when someone comes face to face with the grace of Jesus and begins to follow him. So that's why he says in verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and tried violently to destroy it. I was leaving my peers in the dust. I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. No one did it better than me. No doubt they had heard of his past. And when Paul uses those words, Judaism and zeal, they're like a signal flare going up. They're like code words in the first century. Paul is not telling his friends that he's Jewish. I mean, they knew, they knew he was Jewish. He's telling his friends that he held that identity in a very particular way. He is reminding them that he was fiercely, 
fiercely nationalistic and committed enough to his cause that violence was not out of the question. In fact, violence was often the vehicle of his nationalism. And it wasn't just about protecting his brand of Jewish identity from other nations. It was more often about protecting his particular brand of Jewish identity from other Jewish people. He wanted everyone to keep the law how he kept the law, how he and his people interpreted the law. He wanted people to do like he did because that's how they would know. That's how Paul would know. That's how the whole world would know that they were faithful, that they were good. And maybe God would notice them and turn their national fortunes around. And so when Paul first hears these people talking about this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, and how people said he was the Messiah, And how this guy Jesus from Nazareth would eat and go to parties with the worst of the worst. With with people that Paul would never be caught dead with. How he would love the worst and the unclean. And when Paul heard that people were saying that Jesus said that's what the kingdom of God is actually like. It's like this. It's like doing this. When Paul heard this nonsense to him that that he had died for the sins of the world on a Roman cross and that God had supposedly raised him from the dead, when Paul heard this stuff, he lost his mind. People that believe stuff like that could not be imprisoned quickly enough for Paul. They could not be beaten fast enough and hard enough. They could not be stoned to death at a great enough clip for Paul. No amount of their blood was enough. No amount of their blood staining the sand would ever, ever, ever be enough for Paul. And church, this is why he describes himself in another one of his letters as the worst of sinners. He was an awful, awful man. So do you see what he's trying to say now? You see what he's telling his friends? He's saying, listen, I I don't just have a passing acquaintance with what these people are telling you. It's not just like I know a little bit about it from a book. I was deeply embedded in it. It was my entire life. I made people like them look like amateurs and clowns. It was everything to me. And none of it worked. It was completely fraudulent. And I would have kept living this soulless, vacant, dark existence for the rest of my life if it wasn't for one thing. that moment on the road outside of Damascus that we talked about last week. Here's how Paul tells his friends about it. The one who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace and he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And here we are again with Paul using that dangerous, threatening word, grace. But there is no other word for it, is there, church? Because by our normal way of reckoning things, there is no reason at all that Paul should have had any second chances. 
That's not what happens in the stories that we like to tell ourselves. In the stories that we like to tell ourselves, the bad guys lose in the end. But in this story, the good guy dies for the bad guy. And then the good guy comes to the bad guy and forgives him even before the bad guy knows enough to ask to be forgiven. And then the good guy gives the bad guy a whole new life. Makes him into a brand new human being on the spot. Church, there's only one word that fully captures the divine absurdity and beauty of a story like that. It is grace. He called me by his grace. And one thing should be crystal clear, it should be clear to them who are reading it, it should be clear to us that grace came unbidden to Paul. He did not do anything to earn it, he did not do anything to pave its way to him, he did not do anything to get himself ready for it, it just pleased God to give it to him. May God happy to give it to him. And this is always how God's grace comes to people like us. It's how it comes to anybody. The old uh, Puritans used to say that God doesn't break everyone's heart in the same way. (laughs) And that's true, for sure. Uh, The particulars of Paul's story are very, very extraordinary. And I know that there are some of you here this morning who have very extraordinary particulars in your story of coming to faith. And they're awesome, and I'd love to hear them. But most of us don't have stories like that. Jesus called most of us real quiet. (laughs) No blinding lights required. But even if God doesn't break all of our hearts in the same way, he does break all of our hearts. And we don't do anything to earn it or pave the way for it or get ourselves ready for it or do a bunch of good stuff so that we look like we may be good candidates for his love. He just sets us apart and he calls us and he's happy to reveal his son Jesus to us. And hey, maybe, maybe he's doing that for one of you right now here in this most predictable of places in church. No blinding lights. That is just like him to do it like that. And if that's you, all I can say is listen. Listen to him calling you. Listen to what he is saying. <laughs> Rest your faith in the Jesus he is pleased to be revealing to you. And when people like us experience the grace of Jesus more deeply, it changes us. Because grace isn't just God's loving disposition to us in Jesus. It is also the incredible power of God's love working in us to make us into the people that we were created to be. And one of the ways, people, that every one of us in here was created to be is to be as gracious to others 
as God has been with us. I mean, unchecked. Unchecked, I know how it works because I know it from the inside out. Unchecked, we want to love people. We want to extend our love to people who will love us back. Unchecked, we want to give our love to people who get us, who, who understand us. Unchecked, we want to love people who are kind to us, who, who look like us, who value the same stuff that we value. But we have definitely been checked. And that is very good news. We were loved by God when we did not love back. And church, sometimes I think growing up as a Christian is getting that deeper and deeper into who we are, knowing it so much more deeply in our bones, as deep as we can know it, that we were loved when we did not love back. And the power of that love is working in us. And it is more than enough every single time. It is more than enough to enable us to love people who are unlovely and who don't get us and who don't value the same things that we value or who want us to fail or who are our enemies or at best who are indifferent to us. It is enough every single time. Church, you have been set free. You have been set free to be as gracious to others as God has been with you. It is the life that we have been made for. And so Paul, really, in the lines that are between the lines, tells this story. He tells his story as a way of showing his friends this is what it looks like to come face to face with Jesus and to be changed by his grace and then to walk away from that a new person. He's telling them his story because it's their story too. And at the same time, it works to establish his credentials. It gets them him in the door to see them. He says, soon after I saw the risen Jesus, I I didn't consult with anyone right away. I didn't even go to Jerusalem, the center of this new movement of people who are following Jesus. I, I went to other places and I did other things. I didn't talk to anyone. And three years later, finally, I made it to Jerusalem. And I stayed a couple weeks there with Peter and I met James once. And then I went away from there, still largely unknown to the churches in Jerusalem. What is the point of this? Why is Paul telling them about his life, his travels? It's so that the friends that he has in that church will know that he is talking about something he knows how to talk about. Peter and James were somebodies. And even though Paul is his own man, if he was teaching some kind of people-pleasing funny business, the guys in Jerusalem would have set him straight. I mean, they didn't just talk about the weather for 15 days straight. But they were happy to see him and send him on his way. And perhaps most importantly, when Paul left Jerusalem, he left behind a distinct and deeply, deeply important impression. Really, this is his credential. When he left Jerusalem, the people knew he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he tried to destroy. That story makes no sense. 
no sense at all unless this grace that Paul has been preaching about is true. And church, it is absolutely true. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe. Help us to believe every day deeper and deeper into who we are, that we were loved fully, completely, thoroughly, passionately, when we did not love back. Father, help us to believe that that's true. Use whatever you need to to help us to believe that that's true. And change us by that love every day so that we can in turn love and show grace to others in the way that it has been shown to us. Father, do that for our good. Do that for the good of this broken world around us. We pray in particular today for the East Coast, for the Carolinas, as they face probably catastrophic flooding. We ask that you would speed relief in whatever means you can and that you would be happy to use your church there. Father, we pray too for our own beautiful and broken city on the eve of a trial that will likely bring distress to our city no matter how it ends. Bring justice and peace and use us to do it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.